shooting. Skimmer Way near Lakewood, Charles 478, Tango. Thank you for joining us on Inside EMS. Now the always entertaining Chris Zebalero and the Ted Nugent of EMS, Kelly Grayson. Well, this is it. Here we go with another great edition of Inside EMS. I'm your host, Chris Zebalero. I got to tell you, summer's almost over, and I was thinking last night, how many shopping days do we have left till Christmas? And I know what you're thinking. That's crazy, but we've got a big family. you got to start planning, and uh, Christmas is coming, and, and pretty soon we're going to be into the fall. And i got to tell you, summer's going fast, but it's been an awesome summer. But here's a guy that's had an incredible summer, and uh, we like to hear some of those summertime stories. Is our good friend and co-host, Kelly Grayson. Kelly, how are you? I'm fine, man. I'm, uh, I'm enjoying my summer. It's a nice thing about Louisiana. Summer is uh, about 10 months of the year, and then we have a, a month of winter and, and uh, a month of road construction. Yeah, it's probably more than a month of road construction. I got to tell you, I mean, it's I'm, road construction's a, a year-round thing here. But you know, at least some most places they do it at night, so you don't have to worry too much. Yeah, that's awesome, man. And and one of the things that I think is uh, fun is uh, I'm up here in St. Louis. Well, actually, I'm in Florida still. I haven't left Florida for the past three weeks, so that's been pretty interesting. But uh, it gets cold as heck up there in St. Louis, and uh, we it's they're predicting it's going to be a rough winter this year, but. Uh, I enjoy the people that complain about the summer and the people who complain <laughs> about the winter. There's nothing to make them happy, man. Nothing to make I, them happy. I'm, uh, I'm just enjoying being able to take my jet ski out on the lake well into October. Yeah, that's awesome. When I, I remember <laughs> when I was living in Florida back when I was in the Air Force days of, uh, of water skiing on Christmas Day. Oh, yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. So, you know, Kelly, one of the things that we always enjoy is uh, we get these <laughs> constant emails from folks and asking us questions. So this week's email comes to us from J.J. Norris out of North Carolina. He's a paramedic student, and his question deals with uh, he wants to do a research project on the different areas to go into uh, when it comes to being a paramedic. And, and there's so many different areas to go into mm -hmm. now that you think about. There's community paramedicine, there's tactical paramedicine, there's flight paramedicine. And uh, he's kind of asking us our opinion as he does this uh, project. He wants to help the younger students who are coming in and uh, kind of give them some direction. You know, uh, his goal, of course, is he wants to get an associate's degree and a bachelor's degree in emergency medical science, and I think that that's really great mm -hmm. and admirable. And, you know, we, we enjoy hearing from our, our, our listeners, and if we can give a little bit of, uh, you know, if we can give a little bit of our experience to help share, I think that that's, uh, you know, great for us, and, and we're very honored to do that. But you want to give this a go? Uh, Kelly, you want to answer first, and then I'll jump in? Yeah, there's you know that that's one of the nice things about uh, about EMS as we start to expand and 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 think of non-traditional uh, non-ambulances venues to, to practice our craft uh, is that there there's an expanding job market for us out there. You you mentioned all the big ones and uh, another huge one is is industrial and safety EMS working offshore uh, and event medicine and and for that matter in in the states that allow that sort of thing. Uh, uh, ER paramedic. You can work in the ER to your to your scope of practice uh, as a paramedic, and you know, and function in that regard. But I think before anyone makes those decisions to to specialize in one of those things and, and make that their focus of their career, um, I know this is going to shock you, but I think they should get some experience on the street first. Wait, wait, <laughs> yeah. wait. Is this the Kelly Grayson? What have you done with my partner? Who are you? And what have you done with my partner? <laughs> well, here's the thing. I, I don't think it's you know. I, you and I have debated uh, 
uh, ad, ad nauseum about the value of experience. And I think experience as a prerequisite for going to paramedic school is vastly overrated. Yes, it's important, but it's too hard to quantify. And, and in my experience as an educator, it's just as often a hindrance as it is a help because it's bad experience. Um, it's bad habits and, and laziness and cynicism that I have to overcome in teaching people how to do what paramedics do. But I think if you're going to, to specialize uh, in EMS, specialize in, in one of our you know, uh, fields of, of practice, that you, you need to work on being a generalist first. You, know, you, you need to have some context of street medicine before you go into community care, mobile integrated health, or the emergency department, or anything else. I think that just makes you a more well-rounded provider. Um, and you, you get an, because one of the things you're doing is you're interfacing with these people. When you work in the emergency department as a paramedic, paramedics are bringing you people from the street. When you're working as a community paramedic, you are interfacing with, with paramedics who work on the street, who are dealing with your, your chronic patients you're visiting all the time. So, you know, it, it just makes you a more well-rounded, uh, provider and, and you can, you know, spend a couple of years on the streets and then decide where you want to go with your, with the rest of your career and at least you have some context as to uh, what the job is going to be like before you decide which part of it you want to specialize in. Yeah, I got to agree with you 100. percent And I, I, I like that you went into the, you know, the thought of uh, developing your skills and experience, and and you really that's one of the things, Kelly. I think puts you in the direction of what you like to do. Now, uh, to go back to JJ's question. I would like to really kind of see something in paramedic school that gives you the opportunity to specialize in mm -hmm. something as well. And then I want to take that one step further because JJ talks about wanting to become a, uh, you know, get his associate's degree, get his bachelor's degree. So let's start first in paramedic school. I believe that there's going to be a time where community paramedicine is part of the initial curriculum. You know, right now we're, we're looking at people who are tenured, we're looking at people with compassion, we're looking at people, but as this thing grows in the next five to ten years, this is what's going to be the primary duty of the paramedics who are coming out of school. And to be honest with you, the EMTs that are coming out of school as well. There's nowhere that says community paramedicine has to be a paramedic. And, and we've got to get out of that uh, mindset because anybody can really do it. So how cool would it be to go through paramedic school and then at the end of it, you take a specialization in tactical medicine? Or oh, yeah. you take a, a specialization in community paramedicine? Or you take a specialization in you know special events? But, but moreover than this, how about when you go into an associate's program or when you go into a bachelor's program, you now take the specialization of being an operations manager or you take the specialization of being the clinical manager or mm -hmm. you take the specialization of you know system status management uh, communications. And, and really when we think about those specialties, where is it that you want to drive yourself into when it comes to... Um, you know, EMS uh, as a career. And, and that's one of the things we don't do is we give people an EMT certification, we give them a paramedic certification, and then we give them a, an associate's degree where they've sit through all the math classes and we've given them some philosophy and foundation of what EMS is all about. But, but where's the specializations coming from? If we can put our students into a path of, of learning the career as they're going forward, I think we're going to wind up keeping a lot more people. But that's just our yeah. thoughts, man. We'd be interested in knowing what you guys think, and yeah. you know, we totally appreciate the emails that we get from our from our listeners. 
and uh, you know, whenever we can share some of our knowledge, and uh, you know, I got Kelly to admit that experience is important, and uh, that's my goal in life. <laughs> yeah, go on, go on and keep telling yourself that. You know, I, um, but I, I like your idea. You know, and when when my Legion of Flying Monkeys completes my quest for world domination, you know, stuff's going to change, and one of the things that's going to change is is an associate degree will be the minimum entry level for paramedic. You will have to have two years of college. Uh, and, and an associate degree to become a paramedic. And then if you want a baccalaureate degree, you can go into any one of a number of specialized realms. You can become a critical care paramedic, a community health paramedic. You can become an industrial medic. You can take a management and uh, a management focus and, and uh, or an industrial medicine focus or a tactical medicine focus and, and get your bachelor's degree in that field of study. Uh, and and uh, I think that will make for much more well-rounded and, and uh, a much more structured, uh, you know, quantifiable, educated provider uh, instead of the patchwork system that we have now. I agree 100%. Let's go ahead and go into news. What do you got for us? You got a first story? Um, man, your, uh, your old hometown, man, the uh, uh, Ferguson just can't seem to, uh, to, to not try to tear itself apart. Um, it's been a year since Michael Brown's shooting and, uh, and, you know, by now anger should have dissipated, but it seems like, uh, there are some people that just want to see the world burn. So, you know, I'm sure you've been following the unrest up there, uh, and, and some of the, the, the riots and the protests that have broken out in violence. And this, uh, young man who shot at the police, uh, is critically injured, uh, suspect opened fire on officers, uh, on the anniversary of his death, and uh, officers fired back, and uh, he's now in critical condition. Uh, and what rankles me is you, you see the uh, you see the the national pundits, you know, starting to uh, to bag on first Ferguson PD again when it was pretty clear on the video that the guy was ha- had a gun and was shooting at police officers. I, you know, kind of file that under play stupid games, win stupid prizes. Uh, <laughs> When is it ever going to end up there? Yeah, and I think that one of the things that a lot of people need to uh, understand is that, you know, this really hasn't gone away. I mean, just because it's not in in the mainstream of media doesn't mean there's still not a lot of tension. Uh, There's not a lot of uh, challenges. Every so often you get protests out there that are in front of the police department. But, you know, uh, Kelly, if you go back to... um, you know, a few months back, I, I kind of predicted that this was going to happen on the end. Yeah, he did. And, you know, I, I think that the challenge is, you know, the, the, the big thing last year was hands up, don't shoot. The big thing this year is that, um, you know, Michael, uh, Michael Brown uh, died uh, for change. And it's still trying to get to that change that people are, uh, you know, you know, kind of protesting to. Now, again, I'm not here to say that the protesters are right. I'm not here to say the protesters are wrong. I'm here to say they got a right to protest. Mm -hmm. But they don't don't have a right to break out in violence and and infringe on the rights of others and shoot at police officers. I mean, the the very first evening that the new interim police chief was giving a, you know, was giving an interview with the... Yeah. And and shots broke out. And, Mm -hmm. you know, this is with the police chief in the street... And, uh, you know, there, there just has to be some, uh, you know, people just have to be civil in the things that they're doing. You know, get your message out. You've got the right to protest. And, uh, but you don't got the right to kill people and hurt people. And, 
you know, I, I love it how you said it. You know, I was kind of off mic when you said it, you know, do stupid things, win stupid prizes. Mm-hmm. You know, but anytime you, you point a gun at a police officer, you know, you it's not going to work out well for you. Uh, or certainly may not work out well for that police officer either, but... Yeah, you know, that's we got to stop doing that, man. And people yeah. are dying. Uh, people are dying, and uh, it's not helping anything. But my story comes out of West Hampton Beach, New York, and it is an EMS chief. He defends the response time to fatal drowning. Records show that it took seven minutes for an EMS provider to arrive at the scene. Witnesses criticized the speed of the response, and you know when you think about a seven-minute response time, I mean. That's well within the eight yep. and fifty-nine second average that we've deemed to be the uh, you know the national benchmark of these things. But it just goes to show that even with a seven-minute response time, you are going to have people who are going to be challenged to say that uh, you're not getting there fast enough. You know, the chief of West Hampton War Memorial Ambulance, whose crew members were criticized by some witnesses for the speed of their response, followed an August one death of a swimmer at Rogers Beach said it took seven minutes for first responders to arrive. And, you know, this just goes into the expectation that our, you know, that our citizens have for the work that we need to do. I mean, sometimes, you know, you and I, Kelly, have seen it throughout the years where we get on scene and we know something may not be an emergency and and we're, you know, taking our time getting up to the patient or we're pulling our stuff out and people are all Mm -hmm. upset and nervous because they don't know what to do and, you know, we've got all the answers and we're the end-all, beat-all to save that life. And if if we don't move in, in, in a sense of urgency, if we're not getting there fast enough, we're not meeting the expectations of the citizens that we serve and really, does this come down to education, or is this something that's just going to plague us for the rest of our days in EMS? Well, I think it's a paradigm we need to change. And and you know, in this in this story, here we are. We're EMS is hoist on its own petard. We have we have created this false expectation, or the, we we've created this these unrealistic expectations as far as response times. Uh, Preaching our, you know, preaching our message of call us, call us, you know, don't don't go by private car, call us. When quite frankly, uh, there's a whole bunch of people that could and should go by private car, and some people don't need a rapid response. Okay, and when it comes right down to it, the only response time we know that is meaningful and quantifiable is four minutes or less for a witness cardiac arrest with CPR in progress. Okay, and if we can't make four minutes or less, which is out unreasonable for just about any EMS system, then all the rest of them are are, are subject to scrutiny. And you know, if that's the one we know, if we're are we gonna, you know, is the community gonna support us money wise to build a, a system capable of responding to any potential cardiac arrest in four minutes or less? Uh, that's just not never going to happen. Well, so if, if we can't meet that expectation, why don't we start fostering some some more realistic expectations as to when an ambulance is necessary and how fast it should get there? Let me give you my side of that. I, mean, I wanted to stop you kind of in the middle of where you okay. were to kind of intersect, but let's talk about the eight minute and fifty nine second standard that came out in the you know in the system status management days and. And, uh, you know, the American Heart Association, we kind of took that as some of a guideline, and we said that we'll get there in 8 minutes and 59 seconds, and we should be able to make a difference if we can get there in time. And what this allowed us to do is this allowed us to place our resources in places that we'd be able to get to any life-threatening call in 8 minutes and 59 seconds. Now, here's something that's changed, though, Kelly. 
What's changed over these past 30-some years is the fact that we now have a bigger base of first responders. You know, as the fire department has gotten more into the EMS business, their response time to get on scene and what they're telling their tax-based citizens are is we'll arrive on scene in four minutes. So yeah. even though a transporting unit is getting there in eight minutes and 59 seconds, those first responders should be getting on scene in four minutes. Well, that's defin- that's def- that's good care. That's definitive care in mm-hmm. that point that they can stop that arrest, that they can you know save that person who's drowning, and, and they can really make a difference. So we're hanging on to this eight minute and fifty nine second thing, like it's a, a, you know like it's the lottery numbers, but yet you, you should have a first responder on scene in half that time. Yeah, yeah, and and I I can't disagree with that, but. And that brings to brings to mind the, the point that that if you have a decent uh, response time, you have a minimal response time, and can stop the clock and get trained responders on scene, even if they're not a transport unit, um, that makes the transport time far less critical. You know, my my theory is, or or my uh, my attitude has always been, is the emergency ends when I arrive on scene. Um, and, and the people that are still emergent that require rapid transport to the hospital, very few and far between with, you know, with the exception of critical trauma. You know, we can utilize our, our fire department uh, uh, as first responders for that matter. What's to keep us from utilizing the citizenry themselves as first responders? Right. Something, uh, something uh, they uh, do very well in Seattle. Yeah. You know, a well-trained populace in CPR willing to provide life-saving care uh, can make the difference, and and Seattle Kings County Medic One, and and all of the systems that have very good cardiac arrest survival rates uh, boast that kind of response. Uh, yeah. It's pretty yeah. obvious that, that that's one of one of the biggest things that makes a difference. Um, so, you know, having that in place uh, would be great. But I, I still, you know, go back to we need to start fostering some more realistic expectations as far as response times. Uh, you know, yes, we can we can utilize other resources to, to stop the clock and, and get uh, trained responders on scene quicker uh, by kind of thinking outside of the, the transport unit box. Um, but uh, we also need to start educating the public uh, just as zealously uh, for the next generation as we have in the past to that you do not need to call an ambulance for X or Y. Right, right. Oh, this does not need an ambulance response. Uh, the UK has has been doing that for years now because you know they discovered what we uh, are still trying to figure out is that you know when you when you encourage everyone to call nine nine nine, everyone does, and it taxes the system. And now they've discovered they can't meet the demands. So you know, educate your people on on when it's it is and is not appropriate. We need to do the same thing. Yeah, I, I think you're right. And one of the things that I think is, you know, we got to change the educational process of what we've done, and you, we've created this system we're in. But, you know, let's go back to your your talk about. Uh, I wanted to make a point on, you know, you saying that let's arm our citizens. I, I mm-hmm. love the idea that you need to get a CPR card before you can get a driver's license. Yes, and, indeed. And every time, or a high school diploma. And you need to get your uh, before you get a, uh, you know, your driver's license renewed. You have to show your your CPR card as well, but. You know, that still doesn't mean that people are going to be able to or or be willing to jump into and save someone's Mm -hmm. life as well. But here's the other thing that I think when we think about an eight minute and 59 second response time 
When we used the 8 minute and 59 second response time, that was to get on scene to deliver care and bring people to the hospital. We really need to get out of the concept of taking dead people to the hospital. So even though we get on scene in 8 minutes and 59 seconds, that doesn't mean we should be transporting these people off the scene. And we need to get to the days where we're working those codes on scene, we're delivering the best care that we can. Uh, again, you and I have talked about what is it that the ER do that I can't do in the back of the ambulance. Mm-hmm. And if it comes to the point that we're on scene for 30 minutes working a respiratory cardiac arrest and we're not able to get return to spontaneous circulation, we're calling the code in the field. And again, I think that's education to the public that that's going to happen. But I think we give false hope when we put people on a stretcher and we take a, a, a what we know is going to be a, a resuscitation we're not going to be able to save. And we bring them to the hospital and we give false hope to the family. And we really just got to change the whole education on the paradigm process and, and get away from this eight minutes and 59 second thing. Yeah, I agree totally. All right, what do you this, got? What do you we got, got our next one, and this is more, uh, uh, this is an example of the, the kind of story we've covered quite frequently, uh, ambulance crashes and, uh, and safety. This happened in Miami, and... Uh, a fire truck and an ambulance on separate lights and sirens responses uh, collided at an intersection in uh, in Miami, Florida, and uh, 12 people uh, on the uh, responding engine and the ambulance were transported to the hospital. None seriously injured, thank goodness. Uh, but it seems the uh, the uh, ambulance uh, had the red light and did not stop and clear the intersection. It looks like they kind of coasted through and, and only got on their brakes right before they made impact with the truck. Uh, you know, someone wasn't observing the lug nut rule, um, and shame on them. Uh, but uh, this is an excellent what's, demonstration what's, on, on why the we have these, these uh, uh, rules in place to stop and clear intersections, even if you're lit up lights and sirens. What's the lug nut rule? What are you talking the about? The lug nut rule is, is whenever you're at a four-way stop uh, and you're wondering who has the right-of-way, um, whichever vehicle has more lug nuts than yours has a right-of-way. If I'm in a, if I'm in a four-door car and it's a big dually truck, he has a right-of-way as far as I'm concerned. If I'm in an ambulance and it's a semi-truck, he has more lug nuts than I do. He has the right-of-way. That's By all means, sir, the bigger vehicle goes first. You know, I, I think that's funny, man. That's really cute. That's, that's, that must be one of those uh, Louisiana colloquialisms. But, um, yeah, when I saw this, it was really kind of a, a sad thing to hear that uh, two responders are, are coming in the same area. You know, one of the best practices that I've ever seen, and, uh, and this comes out of MedStar in Fort Worth, Texas, when I was a paramedic on the street there, they would always let us know that there were multiple vehicles in the area responding from different directions. And mm-hmm. even though it gives you the opportunity to say, I've got to clear this intersection, it gives you a little bit more due diligence when you know that there's a fire, fire, uh, a fire engine coming or there's police cars coming and they're coming from different areas. And it makes you more aware of what's going on. And, um, you know, usually uh, I kind of looked at it in, in, in the sense of the right of way is, is with those lights. Just because, you yeah. have lights, just because you have lights and sirens going and you're coming up to a red light, doesn't mean you have due regard to go through that light. And uh, you need to clear that intersection. You need mm-hmm. to make that work. And we were very, very saddened when we heard of this accident because this could have been something that was truly serious. Now, yes. h- here are these ambulances and these firefighters trying to get to a scene 
and this is a fire, and who's inside that fire? Mm-hmm. And now this truck is out of commission, and that ambulance is out of commission, and we don't know if there was anybody else responding to that. So does that response have to start all over again? But you know, yeah. when we think about when we think about uh, you know handling our ambulances and ham- handling these emergency vehicles, we truly have to know that what we're doing is dangerous, and, and, it's, right. and it's not the opportunity to drive fast. It's not the opportunity to, to go through red lights. I mean, th- there are some systems that have the Opticon system, whereas the as the lights are on, it automatically changes the it automatically changes the the lights for them as they're going through from red to green. But you still shouldn't, you know, you still shouldn't pass through those intersections without knowing that you're going to be clear to do so. And I think sometimes we just forget that. But Kelly, I think this goes back to our show a couple weeks ago when we were talking about that people aren't being trained when it comes to handle these ambulances and how to drive them. We put people, you know, who are who are just out of EMT school and and we put them behind the wheel of an ambulance and we say, all right, go forward and don't kill anybody. And I think that we have to take some responsibility as a career field to say we're not training our people or or properly educating them, properly educating them on how to get through these intersections. Yeah, I, you know, my first boss was was very meticulous uh, about driving and and operating the ambulance. And before I even took an EVOC course, uh, he taught me to drive an ambulance. And one of the things that he said to me stuck with me very well was, was uh, it does no one any good to get part way to the scene really, really fast. <laughs> you know, you have to make it all the way there. That's, That's the first goal. That's a good uh, and, and just because you, you managed to drive real fast and then get in a wreck 100 yards away from the scene, you didn't accomplish your goal. Um, and he was, he was extremely meticulous in how his ambulances were, even to the point of, of how we started them, you know, he had a sequence. You get in the ambulance, start the engine, then apply your seatbelt, then engage your lights and your siren, and then pull forward, disengage, or disengage the parking brake, pull forward slightly, look left, look right, look left again, then and only then do you merge into traffic. And he always wanted it done in that order. And the reason he wanted it done that way is because we had old crappy ambulances with, with uh uh, wheezing uh, engines that, that were on their last legs, and he didn't want us romping on a cold ambulance engine before it had time to circulate oil. Uh, but it also it, it instilled this, this mindfulness about what you were doing when you are operating an ambulance. There's a, there's a process to it, and you need to be aware of every single thing that you're doing. Um, and, and that made us all much more mindful of, of the machinery that we were, uh, in charge of, of operating. Um, and, and we were, were with it, you know, one exception and a fatal crash. We were, we were very good at that. Uh, and, uh, you know, most of the accidents that we see, uh, are because of, uh, of people just driving too fast and not observing the rules of the road. They, you know, the, the, License irons don't grant you the right away. They just mean that you're requesting it. Yeah, I got to tell you, I mean, there, there's a lot of great things in the news today. And, and you guys get on EMS One and you check out some of those news stories. And, and if you have any emails that you want to send to us, you know, take a letter from the mailbag and answer your questions. But Kelly, I think we're going to put the wraps on another show. And uh, why don't you go ahead and get us up on out of here? Guys, once again, thanks for tuning in Inside EMS. Don't forget to uh, rate us on iTunes. Uh, Click on the RSS feed and make sure you're following us. And 
As always, you can share your concerns, comments, and questions with us at the show at ems1.com. And for myself and co-host Chris Sebolero, thanks for tuning in to Inside EMS. We'll catch you guys next week.